When faced with incredibly difficult circumstances, perhaps sometimes overwhelming, whether that be mentally or physically, emotionally, spiritually, everyone defaults to some sort of pattern or of a coping mechanism of sorts. For some of us, it's isolation. We seclude ourselves off. Others of us, it might be outbursts of anger. Still others, it might be denial. This really isn't happening to me. Uh, Some might devolve into patterns of excess, say food or drink. For me, I wish it were prayer, but it tends to be paralysis. Just kind of being stuck and frozen there for a minute, making no progress. Sometimes afraid. I I had a couple of, of moments of that kind of paralysis this past week. And when they hit... I was grateful for the text that God in His wisdom has placed before us for study this morning in His Word. In Genesis 23, the passage that we're going to look at together this morning, Abraham encounters the difficult circumstance of the death of his beloved wife, Sarah. And how does he cope? How does he deal with one of the most difficult pains that confronts us as human beings? Though he doesn't tell us by what he declares and says in the text, we learn by what he does. That in the face of that great pain, he depends upon the promises of God. In the loss of his wife, he looks to the Lord. Abraham, as we'll see, he feels the pain deeply. But the promises of God propel him to act in faith. And it's my prayer that as we open God's Word together this morning, that we would learn from the life and the faith of Abraham. May we learn like him to depend upon God in every difficulty. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 23. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the pews around you, I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 16. Now, as you may recall... Back in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his homeland to go to a place that he did not know. And attached to that call and command to leave, God, in Genesis chapter 12, he promised Abraham a great number of things. He promised to give Abraham lineage, sons, offspring, and land. He promised to give Abraham a people and a place. And those promises have really been governing the narrative of Genesis since Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham has had to hold on to God, trusting God and His promises through all of the twists and turns that his life has taken. And after waiting and waiting and waiting for a son to finally come, we saw in Genesis 21 that Isaac was born. You'll remember from the last chapter in Genesis 22 that Abraham's faith was tested As God asked him to give up his son, Isaac. In the end, Isaac's life was spared. And the seed of that hope of Abraham's offspring, of a people, would multiply to as many as the stars in the sky. That hope was sustained. Abraham was holding on to that promise. God has kept his promise of lineage by giving him a son in Isaac. But what about his promise of land? Giving those people a place. Well, Genesis 23 reveals to us that Abraham continues to trust God for that promise too, and even on a very dark day. Through the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, and a real estate deal for land, we see that Abraham has not let go 
of the promises of God. Abraham has seen God keep his promises concerning lineage. He's going to trust him for keeping his promises concerning land. And Abraham's going to act in accordance with that trust and that promise. And here we're going to learn from Abraham that in life's pain, we hold on to the Lord's promises. Beloved, that's the sermon in a sentence. In life's pain, hold on to the Lord's promises. I want to go ahead and read the whole chapter, Genesis 23 now. And as I read, remember that this chapter is revealing that through Abraham's pain, he is holding on to the Lord's promise of land. That's why we have this, what at first glance is kind of a strange real estate negotiation in Genesis chapter 23. Follow along as I read Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Well, thus far in this reading of God's word... We're going to unpack this chapter under two headings. I think you've got a very full outline provided there for you uh, in your insert, but just two simple headings to guide our time together. 
First, sojourners suffer sorrows. That's what we see in Abraham, isn't it? He suffers the sorrow of death. And second, we see that sojourners hope for home. That's why Abraham makes this purchase. These two points, I trust that we'll see that in them, that in life's pain, we should hold on to the Lord's promises. Let's begin with our first point. Sojourners suffer sorrows. The chapter opens, I don't know if you noticed it there in verse 1, by twice mentioning Sarah's life. You see that in verse 1? Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now Moses, the author of Genesis, announces Sarah's wonderfully long life. In fact, as far as I can recall, Sarah's the only woman in Scripture. She's the only woman in Scripture of whom we are given the length of her life. Uh, this shows us, I think, her importance in the biblical storyline. She was a co-heir with Abraham to the promises of God. Not only did God promise that in Abraham, that through his offspring would the nations of the earth be blessed, but the Lord specified that it would be through Sarah that his offspring would come. She lived a remarkably long, consequential, and eventful life. But like nearly everyone else in the book of Genesis, she died. I wonder if you remember our study of Genesis chapter 5 a couple of months ago. Of course you do. You all remember our study of Genesis 5 together. If you remember our study of Genesis 5, then you remember the phrase, he would, uh, Moses would give a person's name and he would say, and so he lived this many years and he died. And actually that's what we're seeing right here with Sarah, isn't it? The, the drumbeat of death still marches on. In verse 2, we, we, we get the life of Sarah in verse 1, this many years, and then she died. Those painful words, we are reminded that the devil and death have not yet been defeated. The promised son of Genesis 3.15, who would come to crush the devil and death, to defeat them, he has not yet come. Sarah has given birth to a son who's going to stand in the lineage, the line of the Messiah, Jesus. But she dies before he arrives. And this is one of the painful threads that we have to deal with in this chapter. Moses actually wants us to stare death in the face. He puts it before us over and over and over again in this chapter. Nine times in this chapter, Moses mentions the word dead or death. That Sarah is dead. We already saw it in verse 2, but look at verse 3. Abraham rose up from before his dead. Verse 4. Abraham requests to bury his dead out of his sight. Verse 6, he's twice given permission to bury his dead. In verse 8, he again requests to bury his dead. In verse 11, at the end of the verse, Ephron says that he can bury his dead. Verse 13, he can bury his dead. Finally, in verse 15, when the transaction is nearly finished, Ephron encourages him to bury his dead. As I said, the concept of death appears some nine times in the text. And it's attached to another concept of well, the concept of burying. Uh, it, burying Sarah appears some eight times in the text. It's mentioned in verse 4, twice in verse 6, uh, in verses 8, 11, 13, 15, and a final time there in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. Through death and burial, Moses is pushing this issue before our eyes. And he does it in another way too. He causes us to stare death in the eye by looking at the place of burial. He mentions this tomb of burial. In verses 4 and 9 and 20, property for a burying place is mentioned. Then in verse 6, we're told of a tomb. Look at Genesis 23, verse 6 again. Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. 
None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now just put yourself in Moses, or not Moses, in Abraham's shoes for just a minute. He has loved Sarah, lived with Sarah for more than 100 years probably. And he's had to just go through this conversation where over and over again he has to himself say that she's dead. And he has to hear other people say she's dead. He has to say that he needs to bury her. And he's been told that he can bury her. He's even been told that he can lay her in a tomb. More than 20 times in our text, death and its adjoining concepts are mentioned. There's no way for Abraham to escape the pain and the sorrow of Sarah's death. He can't deny it. Denial can't be a coping mechanism for him. And there's no way that we as readers could deny that this has taken place too. And the reality is, is that Abraham, like all of God's people, will probably have to go through this sorrow until the Lord Jesus returns. Abraham called a friend of God. Did you realize that Abraham was called a friend of God? He's called a friend of God in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 8. He's called a friend of God. And this friend of God still has to go through this sorrow. He must feel this pain. He was especially chosen by God to be a blessing to the nations. And yet he must feel this pain. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we too are probably going to feel this pain in our lives. I wonder if you realize that, Christian, you are called a friend of God. Did you know that? In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has laid down his life for Christians. Christians are friends of God, loved by Jesus. And Jesus has chosen us to bring the blessings of his good news of salvation to the nations. And yet Abraham's sorrow is likely to be your sorrow. Again, unless the Lord Jesus returns in your lifetime, you too will have to feel this pain of death if you haven't already. This is something we cannot wish away. Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us this, The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. We have to deal with death. And we will feel its weight. Look at the end of verse 2 again. Look what Abraham does. Abraham went into mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, Abraham grieves the loss of his wife. He didn't pretend that death wasn't painful. He didn't pretend that Sarah's death was free of great sorrow. And the scriptures don't pretend that death is free of grief. Even 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, which Christians rightly quote when someone dies, that we grieve with hope. That's what Paul says. And yet he still allows room for grieving, doesn't he? While death is gain for those who die in the Lord Jesus because they're then with the Lord, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, death is a real loss for we who remain. Don't pretend. That's not a good coping mechanism. Death is one of the sorrows that sojourners face in this life. It has come into our world because of sin, and it will remain in our world until Jesus comes again. The way to cope with death is to go to the one who has defeated it. To go to Jesus. It is a pain that pilgrims face. 
And death is one of the reasons that you need to hope, trust, believe in the promises of God. Because if you do not have hope in Jesus Christ, that He is the one who not only promises eternal life, but proves He can give it because He's been raised from the dead, then you will drown in the sorrow of death. All of Abraham's actions in this chapter reveal that in the midst of his pain, he holds on to the promises of God. Right? He believed, if you remember our study from Genesis 22, when he offered Isaac as a sacrifice, the writer of the Hebrews told us that he believed God could raise the dead. He puts his wife in a tomb, believing and knowing that God will raise her from her grave. Still, there's another sorrow that Abraham faces in our text. The sorrow of displacement. Did you notice that one? Look at verses 3 and 4. Read verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 23 again. Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Do you see what Abraham calls himself there? He calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. Abraham has no real place to call his own. He doesn't have a home. He has no property. He's a wanderer. The book of Hebrews says that he went about in tents. This began when God, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country to your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham was displaced out of his homeland. He's living among the Hittites as a foreigner, stranger. We all know the sorrow of displacement in one way or another, I think. Whether that's uh, when you're living or traveling away from home and learning the customs and courtesies of a different society. Or maybe you felt your displacement when the Lord moves you to a new area. You don't know your way around. And you've got to find a new church. It takes courage to walk into a new church and to offer your heart to a new group of the Lord's people. So if that's you today, if you've come to a new church and you're feeling out of place, thank you for having that courage to come and join us and worship with us this morning. I pray and trust and hope that you are welcomed. Stick around and talk with us. We, we certainly want to try to bring you in so that you don't feel out of place. Another way we may feel displaced is maybe we change jobs. Right? We enter into a new office environment and for the first few weeks you feel like an outsider. You're learning the processes and, and all of that that goes with being a new uh, employee in a new place. I think we've all felt that kind of displacement aspect. And the sorrow of Abraham's displacement is no doubt compounded by the sorrow of Sarah's death. Think of how Abraham's sorrows would have landed on the first ears of those who received this book of Genesis, right? Moses is writing to the people of Israel who are traveling through the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, preparing to go into the promised land. They've come up out of Egypt. They're making their way across the wilderness. And when they were outside of their homeland... What happened? A whole generation died. And they had to bury them in the wilderness, outside of the land of promise. They would read Abraham's story of sorrow, and they would identify with him. We're, we're going through the wilderness too. Abraham, we're wanderers too. We, we feel this pain too. They too were displaced. The same would be true for a later generation. Think of the people of God in exile, right? The people of Israel, when they had been cast out of their lands, taken out by the Assyrians or later the Babylonians, they were longing to be in the home of the promised land. They were wanderers where they were. And their family members died too. 
they would have no, felt, no doubt felt the sorrow of their displacement, like they had to bury their dead like Abraham. And the same is true for Christians today. We feel this sorrow too, of being in this world and out of place in this world. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. Don't you appreciate that our Savior was honest with us? He knew what we would go through. And He would give us all that we needed to keep going through this world. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. Remember what we read earlier in the service from 1 Peter 2.11? Peter, he called Christians sojourners and exiles. Strangers and pilgrims. We feel our displacement. Paul reminds us this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Our true home is in glory with our God. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 puts it like this, But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Christian, I wonder if you actually feel that sorrow of displacement. Is being outside of the promised land of heaven a sorrow of your heart? Or has this world become your home? Where you're comfortable? I was rereading Hebrews chapter 11 this past week, and a phrase jumped out to me that hadn't jumped out to me like that before. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob were looking forward to the city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham, even when he buries Sarah in that land, he is hoping for the promised land of heaven. He's looking forward to that city. We're told that they trusted God's promises. And then Hebrews 11.13 ends like this. The verse ends like this. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the phrase that jumped out at me. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Do you acknowledge and admit that is who you are? Do you embrace that as part of your identity? Don't be ashamed or ashamed to admit that you don't belong here in this world. Abraham acknowledged and admitted that that's who he was. Verse 3, I am a sojourner and a foreigner. And do you know what the, the writer of the Hebrews says next in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14? He says this, For people who spoke thus, or speak thus, in other words, people who talk like this, um, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. The sorrow of their sojourning shaped their outlook on life. It was part of their identity. I'm a sojourner, I'm a pilgrim here, I'm just passing through. But that led them, it propelled them to seek a homeland in glory. That's where their true hope was. It didn't drive them to despair, but to depend upon God's promises as they persevered. They knew they were going to receive a homeland. Believers in Jesus are going to receive a homeland. Though we may suffer death and endure displacement, we know that we are going to make it home. Paul went around encouraging Christians in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Don't you love that for an encouragement? No, no, no. Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. You can't go around them, Christian. You've got to go through them. But you will enter the kingdom of God. That's what gives us hope. That there is a promised land of heaven awaiting us. That's the sojourner's hope. That there is a kingdom to enter. Our God will make sure of it. He said that we must enter the kingdom. That's the great comfort that we looked at during Wednesday Night Bible study this past week. 
uh, when Jesus reminded us that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. We are safe and he's going to make sure his sheep make it home. Though we suffer as we sojourn, we are safe in the hands of our Savior. Sarah's death didn't drive Abraham to despair. It drove him to live in light of God's promises. Abraham's displacement didn't drive him to despair. It drove him to live in light of God's promises. You see, Abraham knew something about God. He knew that God was faithful to his promises. He knew that God would raise the dead. He knew that God sent him a son. He knew that God would give his people land. That's why he sought to make this deal with the Hittites. In the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, these sorrows led Abraham to practically seek this homeland. Though he suffered as a sojourner, he still hoped for home, and all of his dealings prove it. That's why I want us to turn and consider next as we look at this really intricate real estate deal. Let's turn and consider our second point, sojourners hope for home. That's what's going on in Abraham's heart in the midst of this. I want to show you the, the top and the tail of the passage, really the beginning and the end. Because they hint at the promise that Abraham is depending upon in life's pain. They reveal that Abraham is hoping for home. Read verses 1 and 2 again. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now skip down to verses 19 and 20. And as I read, watch for a repeated idea. Here's verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Did you notice the idea that Moses repeated, Moses the author of Genesis repeated for us? He repeated that phrase that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The land where Sarah died and the land that Abraham purchased was part of the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's descendants. Abraham Abraham wanted this land to be his home. And he had good reason for this hope. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, as Abraham is actually walking through the land, the Lord appears to Abraham and says to him, To your offspring I will give this land. Then in Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, while he's settling in Canaan, the Lord said to Abraham, For all the land that you see I will give you, to you and your offspring forever. Two verses later in that same chapter, uh, The Lord even tells him to walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Then in Genesis 15, verse 7, the Lord renews that promise. He renews it again in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, where he says that he's going to give him the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And then just the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 17, after Isaac is spared, the Lord renews his promise of land again. All of these promises, all throughout Abraham's life, he's been holding on to. All of God's promises concerning land, concerning this land that is Hebron in the land of Canaan, they propel Abraham's actions here. That's why he wants to purchase this particular plot. That's why he names a specific guy and his particular location. Because he doesn't want any land, he wants a particular land. In these verses, we see that Abraham is not just a foreigner, but that he is a fearless foreigner. This is Hittite land, not Israelite land. 
Abraham has no right to possess property in Hittite land. And yet, Abraham boldly begs for property there in verse 4. He says, give me property among you for a burying place. Now, I know that Abraham says, give me property. But as we see the narrative unfolds, right, he's really asking to purchase the property. Uh, that word for property in the original language actually connotates holding ownership or possession. This is a bold request from Abraham. And notice the reply of the Hittites there in verse 6. They honor Abraham by calling him a prince of God among them. And they tell him that they're not going to hinder him, but rather they'll host his dead in any of their tombs. I wonder if you see what they're saying. They'll give Abraham a tomb. Basically, they'll let him borrow it. In the end, it won't truly be his because he didn't buy it. He doesn't own it as a possession. But he can bury his dead in any of their tombs. They're politely declining to sell Abraham any property rights. Uh, They'll give him the use of their tombs. And in that way, Abraham will actually be indebted to them. Remember how in Genesis chapter 14, the king of Sodom wanted to give Abraham the, the spoils of war. And Abraham refused to be enriched by the king of Sodom. And so, to your, so here too, he's, he's not going to stop short of rightly possessing, rightfully possessing a piece of land. He wants to purchase property. And so faith is propelling him to push beyond this very polite denial. Notice what he does next. What do you do if you believe the promises of God? And you hope to have a piece of that land? You boldly ask again. Right? That's what he does. The hope of a home in the promised land is propelling Abraham to ask again. In verses 8 and 9, he specifies the place where he would like to bury his dead. And he specifies the person who owns that place. And again, he's after ownership. He promises to pay full price. And he again asks for property as a possession. Now, this is not a text-specific application. Rather, it's just kind of a general application. But Christian, let me encourage you to note Abraham's persistence here. Sometimes I think that we as Christians give up just a little too early. And we need to ask and maybe push just politely, pleasantly, just a little bit more. Uh, If at first you don't succeed, maybe there is something to trying again. You might be told no again, but at least you tried again. And certainly, this is how we should pray. Right? We should pray and keep praying. The Lord Jesus told uh, a parable, and one of the lessons of the parable is that I, I tell you this parable so that you will always pray, not give up, and not lose heart. Uh, just as Abraham keeps asking uh, these Hittites for land, so we should sometimes keep praying and asking our Lord to answer our prayers. Well, since Abraham has specifically named a place, and the owner of that place, the owner Hephron, has, he has to answer that request. Uh, now, if you've noticed, up to this point, all the negotiating has been fairly indirect. Uh, Abraham mentioned Ephron, but as you can see there in verse 10, he was actually sitting right there among the Hittites. In, in verses 10 to 16, we slowly kind of work our way through the transaction. But it's not without difficulty and need for Abraham to keep asking and kind of driving forward in faith. The, the Hittites and Ephron kind of tries to put up roadblocks all along the way of this negotiation. In verse 8, Abraham requested the right to purchase the cave at Machpelah. And then, notice it's specified, at the end of Ephron's field. Uh, Machpelah, by the way, probably means um, to fold or to double over. Maybe it has enough space for both Abraham and Sarah to be buried there for the both of them. Uh, Notice Ephron's reply, though, in verse 11. Abraham mentions purchasing the cave, but Ephron throws in the field. You see what he does there? He offers to give Abraham a field and use of his cave. He's hinting to Abraham that, like, look, 
If I'm going to sell you this cave, I've got to sell you the field that goes along with it too, okay? It may be that Ephron is actually trying to drive up the purchase price by expanding the amount of property in question. Thus maybe discouraging Abraham from purchasing the field and instead just settling to put his wife in his tomb. So now Abraham has to think, do I, do I really want to buy the field that goes along with the cave? And if you're in Abraham's shoes, you're thinking, this just got better. I only wanted a cave, but now he's going to give me a field. He's actually going to give me land in the promised land. I actually have an opportunity to buy land in the promised land. So without hesitation, Abraham basically says, look, name the price. And I'm honestly shocked by how Ephron responds there in verse 15. If you read his response carefully, he's basically saying, come on, old buddy, old pal. I mean, who said anything about price? What's 400 shekels between friends like us? Go ahead and bury your dead. Now, that is an egregious price for that property. Many Old Testament scholars uh, find this to be outrageous. Victor Hamilton points out that 400 shekels would be more than 100 pounds of silver. David only paid 50 shekels of silver for the purchase of the temple site. It's that large plot where the temples is. David only paid 50 shekels for that. In 2 Samuel 24, Jeremiah paid 17 shekels of silver for his cousin's field in Jeremiah 32, verse 9. So these 400 shekels is almost certainly an outrageous price. But Ephron also asks for this price, I think, in an outrageous manner. He twists the knife, I think, on Abraham's pain there at the end when he says, bury your dead. Given the Hebrew syntax, it's almost as if he's saying, Come on, man, this is a small price to pay for burying your wife. Ephron's dealings remind me of the unscrupulous funeral directors who prey upon the grief of widows and widowers. Uh, They say things like, don't you want your wife to be comfortable? Don't you think the shade of that tree over there would be a great place for her to rest? Get the dark-stained cherry wood casket with extra pillows. Have it embroidered with a sweet poem so that she's buried in love. Uh, If any of you are around when I die, do not let an unscrupulous funeral director prey upon my family. Find the nearest large cardboard box and stuff me in it. I am already going to be plenty comfortable in the presence of Jesus. I can assure you of that. So, what does Abraham do with such an outrageous purchase price? He pays it immediately. He doesn't haggle. He doesn't negotiate. This is property in the promised land. The high price is worth it to him. And the Lord has so enriched him throughout the whole course of his life, it's no problem for him. Like he clearly has turned up with a bunch of money to pay whatever they were going to ask for him. This promise, he propels him to pay the price. Abraham's here, his purchase here, reminds me of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. There Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Jesus, in that parable, is telling us about the surpassing value and worth of the kingdom of God. Now, to be sure, we cannot buy the kingdom like we can buy a field or a piece of real estate. That's not the point of Jesus' parable. The point of the parable is that the kingdom of heaven is worth all that we have and are. Abraham knew the true value of that land was not in its price but in the promise that God made to him and his offspring. 
What Ephron didn't know is that though Abraham was willing to pay an outrageous price for that land, he probably would have paid even more. Why? Because this was the land that his descendants would be later given. And when God raised his descendants from the dead, he and Sarah, he wanted to be in that land where his people got up from the grave. He believed the promises of God. I appreciate what Ian Duguid said about this passage. He wrote, Which of them got the better part of the deal? Ephron walked away with a pocket full of silver that he couldn't take with him when he died. But Abraham obtained in symbolic form an inheritance that he could not lose. That little piece of land was a foretaste, a down payment of God's people possessing the whole land and indeed the whole earth. This little piece of land was the down payment of dominion for the people of Israel. And Abraham was really receiving it. In verse 16, we're told that Abraham weighed out that price according to the scales of the merchants in everyone's presence. This was a public payment with an independent third party who confirmed it. In verse 17, we're given a legal description of the area. Uh, This would be like receiving a plat during a property purchase in our day. Uh, This description mentions not only the location, specifying it, the cave, specifying the field, but also the trees too. Notice the language at the end of verse 17 and leading into verse 18. The property was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gate of the city. See, the gate of the city was where legal transactions took place in that day. Everyone saw this transaction took place. And once again there in verse 20, we're told that the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Abraham legally came into possession of a portion of the promised land. And the Lord was beginning to fulfill His promises to Abraham and his offspring. Now imagine that you're an Israelite. And you're making your way through the wilderness to the promised land. You're hearing this story. You'd be thinking, we're going back to where Father Abraham is buried. You'd be thinking, that land is your land. That land is my land. And, and do you know what the children of Israel were carrying through the wilderness? They were carrying the bones of Joseph. Just like Abraham believed that God would give his people the promised land of Canaan, so Joseph believed that promise too. His last instructions before his death, the end of the book of Genesis, were to carry his bones up out of Egypt and back into the promised land where God would bring his people. You see how Joseph was looking forward in the face of his death to that promised land of heaven. And Abraham was looking forward to that too. He depended upon the promises of God in the midst of his pain. Do you see how the promises of God propel their actions, their decisions in this life? And I wonder if you see how in Jesus Christ we have even greater and more precious promises. I wonder if you recognize that in Jesus Christ the promised land of the people of God expands to the whole earth. Remember 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. I read it earlier. We read these words. According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not just a small plot of land will belong to the people of God, but the new heavens and the new earth. The entirety of it. Christian, do you realize that you depend upon the promise? Depending upon that, you have title to your inheritance in the promised land of heaven. This is only what the Old Testament promised would take place in the Messiah. Remember Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, 
where God the Father says to His Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. After Jesus purchases His people by His blood and is resurrected from the grave, what does He commission them to do in the Great Commission? He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' commission, what did He do? He ascended to His throne. And there at the Father's side, He has promised to, uh, to prepare a place for His people. Right? John chapter 14, verse 3, He promised this. I will come again and I will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. Dear Christian, in your deepest pain... Depend upon the promise of your Lord, Lord to give you a land where He will continue to love you without end and be with you without end. Remember the vision that the Lord Jesus gave the Apostle John in Revelation 21 for the comfort of sorrowing sojourners. Listen to what John saw and our Lord Jesus revealed to him. Then I saw new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Christian, this is your inheritance. These are the promises that God has offered and held out to you. These are the promises that the Lord makes to you in the midst of your pain. Whether that be death or displacement or just the general difficulty that we seem to face day to day in this life. Let these promises propel you to believe Him, trust in Him, and keep walking forward in faith. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you today to come and have a share in this heavenly inheritance. Outside of Jesus, you are not promised glory. Outside of Jesus, you are not promised a place in the promised land of heaven. No, outside of Jesus, you are promised a place in hell. A place of eternal, self-conscious torment. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus offers Himself and a home in heaven with Him for all who turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. Friend, end your rebellion against the Lord Jesus today by turning from your sin and by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the one to whom God the Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one to whom God the Father has given an eternal inheritance and Jesus graciously and generously doles out that inheritance to His people, those who trust in Him. Jesus is the one who purchased the promised land of heaven for His people by His blood, through His death and resurrection. Only those who are united to Him through repentance and faith will share that inheritance with Him. So friend, turn from your sin and believe that Jesus lived for you the life of sinless perfection, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Believe that Jesus died for you on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against your sin. Believe that in His death, He was paid your wages for working in sin. 
believe that on the third day, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and offering to us forgiveness of our sins because of His death and resurrection. Believe that He has ascended to His throne in glory and that He will come again to bring His people into their final inheritance. Friend, everything that you borrow and buy in this life will be lost in your death. You can't take it with you. Just like Ephron couldn't take that silver with him. So today, receive your eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. Today, receive your title to glory by trusting in Him. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is an unbreakable promise from the Lord. A promise that you can hold on to in life's pain when everything in your life seems to be breaking apart. It is an unbreakable promise because God cannot be broken and His Word cannot be broken. You can trust Him. Trust Him today. And dear Christian, as we conclude, I want to speak once more to you. I want to remind you that just like Abraham, you too have actually received a down payment of your eternal inheritance. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Paul writes, In Him we have obtained. It's an actual event that has taken place. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Dear Christian, you have received a down payment of your inheritance like Abraham did. Remember these precious promises, dear pilgrim. Especially when the pains of life come upon you. Remember Abraham's faith and hope in the resurrection. And the reward of glory. For that hope is your hope too. Your hope has been made even more sure by Jesus living and dying and rising. Your pain and sorrows, Christian, they have an end. They will come to an end. But the love of the Lord Jesus... And your life with the Lord Jesus in that promised land of heaven has no end. Hold on to Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your many great and precious promises in Jesus Christ. Father, sometimes you know that our faith is weak. Even in the times of pain and difficulty and sorrow. But Father, we give you thanks that your promises do not depend on the strength of our faith. Uh, they are kept by your strength. So Father, remind us that you are greater than all. And you can be trusted this day and each day until the end. Help us to live as those who are bound for Emmanuel's land. We pray now this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, find the insert in your bulletin that is entitled, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Now, I know that this song 
sounds like a downer. The sands of time are sinking. But this song is not a downer, I promise you. Uh, it is a glorious song. Uh, look at verse 4. It talks about how God works in our lives. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered with his love. I will bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned. When throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let's sing of our hope now together. Stand as we sing. on earth I've tasted 